Let's begin with uh, prayer. Please stand with me. Our Father in heaven, uh, what a joy and privilege it is to gather to hear the Lord Jesus speak unto us through his word and thy spirit to attend unto the reading and the study and reflection upon thy truth. I pray that thou would fill our minds with thy, thy knowledge and, and our hearts, Lord, with an affection uh, to love and to obey. We pray, Father, uh, come with us even now. Send thy Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. John 16, the passage that we're looking at begins with verse 32, I'm sorry, verse 13 and goes through verse 22, John 16, 13 through 22. I'm going to begin reading at verse 5 though, John 16, 5. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again, a little while, and ye shall see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, <clears throat> what is this that he saith, a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said, a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again, a little while, 
and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. <clears throat> but as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye know, therefore, I'm sorry, ye now, therefore, have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. So from our last study, uh, the Lord Jesus is preparing his disciples again for his departure to be with the Father there in heaven. And he promises that in his place he is going to send the Comforter. And we've noted uh, another English word for Comforter is Advocate. The Holy Spirit would be given as our advocate, the advocate in the court of conscience, even as Jesus is the advocate in heaven at the right hand of God. And so we have, as God's people, we have an advocate in heaven, and we have an advocate in our own conscience uh, who, again, pleads uh, on our behalf uh, when the enemy attacks us at, at the throne of God uh, we have an advocate there who says, uh, I've, I've paid uh, for that person's sins. Uh, there is no longer any condemnation. Uh, likewise, we have an advocate in our own conscience that uh, uh, when we are again uh, attacked, when we are accused by the accuser of the brethren, the Holy Spirit acts as our advocate to plead within our own conscience uh, that uh, we have been set free from the guilt and from the penalty of sin, that we belong to the Lord Jesus. And so this is a blessed gift, uh, that which Jesus does in heaven, the Holy Spirit does within our own conscience. The Holy Spirit, <clears throat> Jesus says, will reprove uh, the world in three uh, specific areas in verses 8 through 11 of John 16. He'll reprove the world for sin in rejecting him. He'll reprove the world for righteousness uh, because the world is trusting in their own righteousness rather than trusting in the righteousness of Christ. And that will be confirmed, Jesus says, that he is righteous, that his righteousness is sufficient because he will ascend and be with the Father and he will sit at the right hand of God. Uh, that's where our righteousness is, at the right hand of God. And then the Holy Spirit will reprove the world for judgment uh, in wiping away from uh, so often the world wants to wipe away any sense of judgment. Uh, the world doesn't want to think about judgment. 
The world doesn't want to think about accountability for sin or anything of that nature. And so the, we see, again, that that's one of the uh, acts of the Holy Spirit, is to reprove the world uh, for judgment. And how uh, does the world, Jesus say, how does the world know um, that there is a judgment awaiting uh, uh, the world and that they will all stand before him? Well, the Lord Jesus says, uh, because Satan, the prince of this world, has already been judged. Uh, how, how was Satan, even during the ministry of Christ, judged? How was Satan uh, condemned? How was that realized? Certainly it's realized in the death and the resurrection of, of the Lord Jesus, his ascension into heaven, being seated at the right hand as king of kings, all authority being put beneath the feet of Christ. But even during his ministry, before he died, before he was raised, before he ascended and was enthroned at the right hand of God, the judgment of Satan was revealed uh, in the miracles of Christ, in the casting out of demons. Uh, that was, again, a, a foretelling of the judgment that was to, to come in his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, uh, that uh, all demons, all satanic powers were uh, placed even uh, at that time beneath the feet of the Lord Jesus. And he told the parable about him being and likened himself to being the strong man that enters into uh, the house and, uh, uh, and takes the spoil out of the house that the one who uh, does so must bind uh, the one that's in the house in order to do that. And what Jesus was saying is that even in his ministry, he bound Satan. Uh, and that was a condemnation. That was, again, the way in which the Lord was saying, uh, this is uh, evident token of what I'm going to be doing. I control. It's not Satan that controls. I control. He's been judged. There's obviously the final judgment that awaits Satan, uh, just as with the world as well. And that brings us uh, to verse 13, which is our new section, beginning our new section this evening, John 16, 13. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So the Holy Spirit will not only reprove the world, but the Holy Spirit, when he is given, will also guide the disciples uh, into all truth, the Lord Jesus says. Guide into all, not some truth, but all truth. And uh, that specifically, and in a primary sense, I think is the work of the Holy Spirit uh, by way of recording of Scripture, uh, by way of, of recording that which is only true. Uh, that's the blessed work of the Holy Spirit in the minds, the hearts of the apostles who recorded Scripture. We are assured 
that it is in fact true uh, because the Holy Spirit was given by the Lord Jesus Christ to ensure that all that was recorded would be in agreement with his will, God's will, with the will of Christ. But there's also a secondary sense, that's the primary sense, I think, uh, in which we're to understand the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, guiding them into all truth. Uh, there's a secondary sense, I think, that applies to us, uh, that uh, whenever truth is uh, realized, whenever we come to a knowledge of the truth, it's not because we're so smart, it's not because we have an academic degree or seminary training that is the reason um, why we come to understand the truth, it is because of the Holy Spirit that has been given um, by Christ unto his church. And so again, this is uh, an assurance to us that uh, the Holy Spirit is given to open our minds, uh, is given uh, uh, to us to give us faith, uh, to believe, to trust uh, that what is recorded is true. Uh, the Holy Spirit is given to, uh, uh, to us in order to uh, write it upon our hearts so that we desire, so we love God's truth and to go forth and obey it. This is all the work of the Holy Spirit. And so again, um, not downplaying uh, a seminary degree or seminary training at all. Uh, I think those who, those who are going to be ministers of the gospel certainly should be well trained uh, in order to uh, teach that which is faithful and true. But we cannot lean upon our seminary training. We cannot lean upon uh, mere knowledge uh, because this is not, uh, to understand the truth is not uh, simply a matter of uh, academic training. If that were the case, then uh, those who have the most academic training and, and may not even be Christians, liberal scholars who have studied or whatever, uh, would be the ones who understand the Word of God best. Uh, but again, we don't believe that that's the case. How often do they go astray um, because they don't have the Holy Spirit to guide them and to uh, instruct them? They, they are merely working off their own uh, degree and their own knowledge. So that ought to be a comfort to you. Um, you you uh, who are um, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, you call upon the Holy Spirit to help you as you open the Word of God and you, you trust Him. Uh, and how He will guide you is He will again take you to Scripture to compare Scripture with Scripture. Uh, you are also to, I think, uh, use the aid of present, uh, your present ministers, uh, to use the aid of past ministers who are faithful, uh, who have taught the Word of God faithfully. So you have these helps, but your primary aid, your primary aid is the Word of God 
and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in verse 13 that he will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> Jesus says, will not speak of or from merely himself. Uh, that is what Jesus is saying. He's not going to be an independent voice uh, that speaks contrary to the Father and the Son. Uh, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will speak and say the sa exact same thing. And uh, so there's not any uh, contradiction between the persons of the Holy Trinity. Again, this, this shows their blessed unity, their perfect unity uh, in regard to the truth. And that's a pattern for us. Um, for all the, in the world who uh, talk about denominationalism being uh, something good, talking about diversity of doctrine as something that is good, uh, that there uh, are doctrines taught in this church that are different from doctrines taught in that church, and as if, again, that that's supposed to be um, uh, a mark of um, uh, toleration, whatever, you know, uh, the world or many Christians sadly believe about that, that's not the, that's not the way it is in the Blessed Trinity. Uh, there isn't a diversity of doctrine and uh, the Blessed Trinity is to be our pattern. Um, that's whom we are to, though we are not going to reach that kind of perfect unity in the truth uh, until we are glorified uh, with the Lord in heaven, this side of heaven, we still ought to strive and endeavor uh, to follow in that pattern of the Trinity where they speak with one mind, speak in perfect unity with regard to the truth. Diversity in gifts, yes. Uh, diversity in doctrine, worship, church government, no. Unity. That's what we strive for, not diversity in doctrine, worship, and government of the church. We strive for unity in that. That's why we have confession of faith. That's why we have catechisms. That's why we have various subordinate standards that binds us together in these particular matters to which we have attained and reformation has been reached historically with regard to these matters that we agree together that these are what the scripture teaches, what the Holy Spirit has inspired uh, in the word of God. A second thing that uh, Jesus says in verse 13 uh, about the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, is that he will tell you things to come he will show you things to come uh, at the very end of verse 13. Uh, here we see that uh, the Holy Spirit in his coming, just as Jesus, when he was here upon the earth, told the disciples of things to come. 
uh, gave to them prophetic utterances uh, concerning his the coming um, uh, spiritually uh, in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, spoke of the, uh, his second coming. Uh, and, uh, and so we see, again, Jesus gave prophetic utterances. The Holy Spirit would inspire, likewise, the apostles as they wrote God's word to give prophetic utterances as well. So in every way that Jesus ministered uh, to his apostles when he was here bodily, the Holy Spirit as the, as the one who comes in the place of Jesus does the same thing with his people. And so, uh, for example, uh, some of the prophetic revelations uh, given by the, the Holy Spirit to the apostles. In Romans 11, you know, there, which we've been looking at on the Lord's Day, uh, the future of Israel, uh, the, uh, that which was future to the apostle Paul uh, concerning the judgment that would be brought upon Israel. Uh, 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, uh, and that long period of time in which a remnant would be saved uh, from Israel, but that blindness had been brought upon uh, the greater number of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be brought in. This is prophetic revelation, and then all Israel shall be saved, Paul says. Romans 11, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the uh, bodily resurrection of all of God's people uh, when Jesus Christ returns a second time, not only of God's people, but even of the wicked, will be bodily raised uh, in order to appear before the judgment and, and, uh, and uh, then uh, be sent uh, to hell, the righteous, bodily raised to be with the Lord forever and ever. Second Thessalonians 2 speaks of, uh, by way of prophetic revelation of the Antichrist, the, the man of sin uh, or lawlessness, uh, the son of perdition, this papal Antichrist uh, in Second Thessalonians 2. The whole book of Revelation uh, is uh, again a prophetic book. So again, the Holy Spirit, Jesus promises, uh, would lead them into understand, to write down, to record things that were yet to come as well. Verse 14, John 16, 14. He shall glorify me, that is the Holy Spirit shall glorify me, the Lord Jesus, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. So this is the third thing Jesus says concerning the Holy Spirit. First of all, uh, just, you know, we said the Holy Spirit, when he comes, would guide um, the disciples into all truth. Second of all, he would show things to come. Thirdly, he shall glorify me. Uh, that would be the third thing that the Holy Spirit would accomplish. He would glorify me, Jesus says. Just likewise, uh, Jesus had said 
the same thing concerning the Holy Spirit back in chapter 15, verse 26. But when this Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeded from the Father, he shall testify of me. He'll testify of me here. He shall glorify me. So the Holy Spirit's mission is not to glorify himself, uh, but to glorify Christ. He was sent, as we've noted in times past, as the vicar of Christ, to minister in the place of Christ. Christ being in heaven bodily, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to minister in his place, just as he did when he was here bodily. But because the Holy Spirit is everywhere at the same time, omnipresent, Jesus, as being the Son of God, is everywhere uh, present, but as he was uh, incarnated, he was, uh, as a human, he was confined to a body, uh, but not as to his deity. He was omnipresent, even while he was, uh, as a human, confined to his body, he was omnipresent uh, at the same time as to his being God. But here, the Holy Spirit is sent as the vicar of Christ upon earth, and thus he will turn people to Jesus. That will be his great mission, to turn people to Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And so... Though we are to worship the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's God, just as we're to worship the Father, and just as we're to worship the Son, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to open our hearts to Jesus. Uh, that's what he has come to do, to open our hearts to Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his, in, his enthronement at the right hand of God, his ruling over all of creation now, all of the nations being placed beneath his feet, uh, his second coming, uh, his bodily second coming. All of that the Holy Spirit is to minister, to point us to Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit, sadly, in some churches, some churches that I was uh, as a, a child and as a young person uh, was uh, a part was a part of uh, in my early development, uh, the Holy Spirit becomes or seems to become uh, even more important, and because there's more focus placed upon the Holy Spirit than than upon Jesus Christ, and uh, again that's not what the Holy Spirit desires. The Holy Spirit doesn't want the focus to be upon him. Uh, the Holy Spirit came to glorify Christ. The Holy Spirit came to point us to Jesus Christ. We certainly, um, to talk about the Holy Spirit, to teach about the Holy Spirit is not contrary uh, to what God would have us to know about the Holy Spirit, but that's not where the focus should be. Uh, the focus should be upon the Lord Jesus. So when the Holy Spirit and his gifts becomes the focus of worship, of preaching, of parenting, of marriage, of the Christian life, something's out of balance. 
uh, in that kind of presentation because Jesus says the Holy Spirit glorifies him, the Son. The fourth thing that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit is that he will take the truth about him, about Jesus, and show it or reveal it to his disciples in verse 14, and shall show it unto you, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you, verse 14. That is, again, um, as we've already said, the focus is on the truth of Christ. Uh, the truth comes from Jesus, and the Holy Spirit's work is to be the means uh, of applying that truth, helping us to understand that truth uh, in our own minds. So the, the truth comes from Jesus to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then opens our hearts, our minds uh, to understand it, to believe it, uh, to love his, the truth of Jesus and apply it in our lives. Here, again, the, what Jesus is saying about the Holy Spirit should make it very clear. The Holy Spirit's not a mere force. We're talking about a person that can do all of these things. Uh, this is uh, not uh, like the wind, or it's not like a, an electrical charge or something, a force. Uh, this, is, this is a person, a blessed person, a holy person, the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, he is to be worshipped. Um, one God eternally existing is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. We should not forget in our prayers to praise the Father, to praise the Son, and to praise the Holy Spirit. And to thank the Holy Spirit for applying the truth of Christ to our understanding and affections. But again, the focus of the Holy Spirit is to turn our attention to Jesus. Verse 15. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Again, we see the blessed unity of the Holy Trinity uh, here. Uh, the Father gives to the Son and the Son gives to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit gives to us. And so there is that, that blessed order uh, amongst uh, the persons of the Holy Trinity. Verse 16, Jesus says, A little while and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Commentators are uh, divided over how to understand uh, what Jesus says here. And basically, there's, there's two basic interpretations there might be some variations, but these are the two basic interpretations of what Jesus says here when he's speaking of a little while, and ye shall see me, 
and again a little while I'm sorry, a little while ye shall not see me, and again a little while ye shall see me. The first uh, interpretation here is that this refers to, um, he says, a little while ye shall not see me, uh, meaning his death, uh, that uh, he would uh, uh, die and for three days uh, be in the grave, and then in a little while ye will see me. Um, his resurrection uh, from the dead. That's one interpretation that's held by sound orthodox uh, commentators. A second interpretation is, is uh, this, uh, that uh, a little while ye shall not see me, his ascension into heaven, uh, and a little while ye will see me, uh, uh, would be the period of time in which he remains in heaven, uh, and the little while in which you will see me could either be when we die and then see him face to face, uh, uh, or his second coming. Um, and one would say, uh, probably ask the question, well that doesn't seem like a little while, the, the second interpretation, or possible interpretation, uh, because there's a lot of time that's passed from the time that Jesus ascended into heaven uh, and uh, uh, whether it referred to seeing him face to face when the disciples died uh, or the second coming of Christ, that seems like a longer period of time. So um, I think that, again, it's, It's one of those uh, places in scripture that I don't think we can be dogmatic about and we're not, going to, we're not going to make this a test of orthodoxy, uh, the interpretation that one takes with regard to this little while, what that is. But a um, couple things I, I, I think that I would share with you that would, in my judgment, lean more towards the second interpretation that the little while is really an, uh, a little while to God, <laughs> to the Lord, even if it's a long while uh, to us. But uh, Psalm 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Um, this little while does not necessarily mean um, that it's a little while uh, in our estimation, but a little while in the Lord's estimation. And uh, I think that the, the context of John 14 and uh, John 16 really favors this little while in which, uh, first of all, that they would not see him, and then the little while in which they would see him, I think favors the ascension of Christ into heaven, and then uh, the um, either death 
of the believer, in which they will see Christ face to face, or the second coming, coming of Christ, because that seems to be what Jesus, in uh, the various places in John 14, 15, and 16, he's talking about his ascension. Uh, that seems to be the focus. He's about to assure them. For example, listen to what we've already studied, but let me read for you John 14, verses 1 through 4. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. What is he talking about? His death? Or is he talking about his ascension into heaven? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he will come again either at our death uh, to receive us into heaven or the second coming uh, to do so. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Verse 28, John 14, 28 says, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. So again, talking about going away uh, in John 14 is not going away uh, to his death, but going away to be with the Father at his ascension. Likewise, in the same chapter, John 16, that we're presently looking at, look at a few verses here where it speaks of Jesus going away, and each time it has to do with his ascension into heaven, not his death. John 16, 5. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. Verse 16, which is what we're presently looking at. A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. So again, I, I would suggest that probably the second position or interpretation that, that says the little while you shall not see me has to do with Christ going to be with the Father, as it says at the end of the verse, because I go to the Father, and again a little while you shall see me, referring to their seeing Christ at their death, or the second coming of Christ. And uh, with regard to that phrase, a little while, uh, really it is always a little while, a little while to the Lord. Uh, in the midst of all of our sorrows that we endure in this life, even if it seems like a great while to us, period of sorrow, period of suffering, trials that we're going through. We're count, counting the minutes. We're counting the hours. We're counting the days 
the weeks, the months, the years. We're counting those. And we're saying, this is a long time. But to the Lord, it's a little while. It's a little while. And that's, I think, the focus. That's the perspective that the Lord wants us to have. It's a little while. Compared to, again, the great while being all eternity. To be with the Lord, that's the great while. This is a little while. And the only way, I suggest to you, the only way that the great while becomes a little while to us is by faith and is by hope in Jesus Christ that he will, in fact, deliver us out of our sorrow, whatever it is that we're passing through, for his sake, the sorrow that we are suffering for his sake, and into the joy that he has prepared for us. The more that we rest in his little while, not in our great while, but the more that we see and the more we rest in his little while, the more contentment we will have. The more we rest in our great while, the less contentment we will have. As I said, we'll count the minutes, the hours, the days, the weeks, and the years. How long? We'll be saying, as David says many times, how long, O Lord, how long? And there is certainly uh, a truth to that, that, we are, that when we're going through hard and difficult times, that is what goes on within us. We do all reflect that. But to the degree that that how long can become a little while because we are trusting in the Lord, hoping in Him, to that degree we will have peace and contentment, whatever we're going through. The more impatient we are in the great while, rather than being patient in viewing this as a little while will also determine uh, the degree of joy that we have in our Christian life. Because if it's always going to be that we view it as a great while rather than a little while, the joy will be taken from us. The joy will be removed from us. So let's look at our trials. Let's look at our sorrow from Christ's point of view. A little while. Rather than a great while. Verses 17 through 18. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us a little while? and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, and because I go to the Father. Verse 18. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Uh, this reveals 
uh, how little the disciples understood from the words of Jesus. Uh, so we ought not, again, I think, to um, think that we should understand everything that is revealed in Scripture just at, at, at a first reading. The disciples were listening to Jesus and they didn't know what he was talking about when he spoke of this little while. And they asked among themselves, what does he mean uh, by all of this? I mean, they were, they, they, what were they expecting? They were expecting Jesus to, to conquer the Romans and to sit upon the throne within Jerusalem. So they're certainly not, in, in their minds, a little while um, thinking in terms of anything to do with Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension into heaven. Uh, that's just not on their radar uh, at all. This is a classic example, I, I would suggest, as to how our errors in thinking and in judgment affect what we read from Scripture. They had a particular uh, presupposition uh, with regard to what Christ was going to do. They, they believed he was going to conquer the Romans and sit upon the throne in Jerusalem. So when he said a little while, they had no concept, even though Jesus had been talking about his death, his resurrection, he had talked about his ascension into heaven in this very uh, section, John 14, um, and his going in John 16 to go with, with the Father. None of that really registered with them because they had a particular point of view that didn't allow that into their interpretation of the truth. And when we likewise entertain certain errors, uh, we're not going to be able to understand any more than the disciples could understand at that time what Jesus was saying. Uh, we have to have the scriptural, biblical lens to be able to see clearly what Jesus is saying in his word. And so this is a classic example of how our own um, faulty ideas about uh, God, about the truth, are going to affect our interpretation of Scripture. And it's again, the, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture. We compare Scripture with Scripture, not impose our own ideas uh, uh, into Scripture. And that's again why we so desperately need the Holy Spirit as well. Verse 19. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of, of that I said? A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? So Jesus knew they were struggling in their own minds, and they were even among themselves talking about what does Jesus mean by this? And uh, does he berate them? Does he... Uh, say to them, you, you, you bunch of fools, you're stupid, um, you know, or anything of that nature. He doesn't do any of that. Uh, to the contrary, the Lord Jesus patiently and lovingly instructs them. God grant to us 
um, as well that grace uh, that we would instruct our children in that kind of loving, patient way that we who are husbands would instruct our wives in that loving and patient way and that we would instruct one another in that patient and loving way. Not in pride, not in haughtiness, making others feel as though they were stupid in order uh, to make ourselves feel smart. If others that we are instructing do not understand what we're saying by way of our instruction, we're trying to teach them, for example, something from God's Word, and let's just say it's not clicking, the lights are not going on, the tendency usually, um, and I've known the same tendency and, and said the same felt the same frustration. What's wrong with you? Why can't you see this? Why can't you understand this? It's so clear to me. But we have to realize that perhaps there might be something that's going on with the other person, but we have to understand perhaps we're not doing a very good job of teaching. Perhaps we're not doing a very good job of instructing. Perhaps the problem is not so much with the other person, but perhaps the problem is with me. That either I don't know what I'm saying well enough to be able to communicate it in simple terms so that someone else can understand it, or I've become so frustrated and then angry that they're not grasping it, that it doesn't, once that happens, certainly lines of communication are going to close down, the mind's going to shut down to be able to understand or to even perhaps want to understand at that point. Verse 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Jesus describes how the disciples and how we ourselves will have many trials and sorrows in this life. But the world that despises Jesus will rejoice. They're, the world is going to rejoice at our trials. The, re, the world is going to rejoice over the sorrows that we have because we follow the Lord Jesus. See, the world <clears throat> thinks our trials and our suffering for Christ in some way confirms their rejection of Christ. When the world sees us suffering, it justifies in their own perverted minds, it justifies that we're wrong and they're right when they see us suffering. But again, 
the Lord Jesus assures us that suffering as a Christian is a part of being a Christian. Jesus suffered. The disciples suffered. All who will walk in the paths of truth and righteousness will suffer. For us, our suffering for Christ is a confirmation that we are believers. To the world, it's a confirmation they don't want what we, what we have. They want, again, um, their own uh, life, their own will, their own uh, choices, dreams, decisions. They want all of that themselves. And they think that they can't avoid suffering and sorrow. They can't, uh, they can't avoid suffering and sorrow any more than we can avoid suffering and sorrow. The difference is they don't have the Lord Jesus to uphold them, be with them, to strengthen them, to give them hope that their suffering now is not in vain. The world has no such hope. They're going to suffer. They're going to have trials. They're going to face all manner of difficult situations as well, but they do not have the hope that we do. I'll take the hope anytime. The hope that I have in Jesus Christ over anything the world has to offer. The sorrow that we have is for a little while because Jesus has promised to turn our sorrow into joy. Either at the time that we die and we go to be with the Lord see him face to face or at a second coming at the, at the resurrection of, of the dead, uh, there will, our sorrow will be turned into joy. And so we can face whatever comes our way with hope because he is raised from the dead, because he is in heaven and has gone to prepare a place for us. That's what gives us, dear ones, perseverance to endure, to endure and not to give up hope. Throw away hope and why should we take another step? Why should we live another day for the Lord Jesus if there's no hope? Let's just live, uh, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die if there is no hope. But because there is hope in Jesus Christ, that's what causes us. That's one of the things that gives to us perseverance in the midst of suffering and sorrow is there is hope. Verse 21. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. So Jesus illustrates what he had just said in verse 20 uh, with a very common event that women know all too well. Uh, the sorrow of labor, but the joy of a child uh, that is born through that labor, through that suffering. And finally, in verse 22, Jesus says, and ye know therefore, I'm sorry, and ye now 
therefore have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no, mo no man taketh from you. The disciples were even then, as Jesus was talking about this, uh, they were undergoing sorrow. Uh, as he was talking about going away, whether at his death or at his ascension, how much more uh, sorrow initially did they feel until the Holy Spirit was given to them uh, on the day of Pentecost to, uh, to give to them that, that hope and uh, the strength uh, to uh, carry forth uh, the message of truth the gospel but again Jesus promises a joy here that no one will be able to take from you no one can take from you uh, he says when that uh, going back to the idea of hope as I conclude uh, when that hope in the midst of suffering fades and all of us know this to be the case um, in our own lives. We've all experienced it, every one of us. When hope fades, so will our joy. So will our joy. There is an intimate connection between hope in Christ and what he has promised us and the joy that we experience in our hearts even when we're going through suffering. If we let the enemy rob us of our joy, our hope also will be robbed. If we allow the enemy to rob us of our hope, our joy will be robbed as well. They are connected. Hopelessness brings despair. Hope brings joy. Romans 15, 13, which we use very often as a benediction. I'll end with this. Now the God of hope, notice, the God of hope fill you with all joy. The God of hope fill you with all joy. You see where joy comes from? Hope. You see where hope comes from? It comes from the promises of God. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's stand in prayer. Our Father, thou art the God of hope. And Lord, uh, we pray that we might abound in hope, that our joy might be full and complete regardless of what we're going through in this life. And there is much suffering in this life. Whether one is a Christian or one is not a Christian, uh, uh, that's not what 
distinguishes a Christian from a non-Christian, but what distinguishes a Christian from a non-Christian is that we have hope. We have hope in thee. In the midst of all our trials and tribulations. And therefore, stir up within us joy and peace in believing as we look to the hope that there is a certain confident expectation that thy promises will be fully realized. And it may seem like a long while, but thou hast taught us in thy word to view it as a little while. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.